0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here, as always, with my stalwart co-host, Daniel Larrison, as we navigate the shoals of war in the military-industrial complex as seen through the frame of the blob in Washington, D.C. This week, we'll be talking to Quincy Institute scholar Sarong Shadore about his this week's visit and congressional address by India's Prime Minister Neandra Modi and about the Global South's pulling away from the U.S. gravitational pull over Ukraine and other geopolitical flashpoints. But first, there is a competition brewing to replace NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg, who, according to reports, is planning to retire from his role this October. The 63-year-old Norwegian has been the head of NATO since 2014, which in political years is like a lifetime. That means he has been with the alliance during the democracy protests, the overthrow of the Yanukovych government in Ukraine, and the Russian annexation of Crimea also in 2014. But today, NATO has been experiencing a veritable renaissance as the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2002 has led to an amassing of so-called readiness troops, some 300,000 strong now, across the alliance, more weapons being positioned than a network of military and intelligence cooperation and service of Ukraine, which wants to be but isn't yet a NATO member. In other words, Stoltenberg will be leaving NATO at a time when the alliance perceives an even bigger role for itself in Europe and maybe even in the Asia Pacific as tensions build there and member countries like the UK have pledged to assist the West in containing the so-called China challenge. So we come to Stoltenberg's replacement. There are a number of contenders and they largely look to be serviceable handmaidens of the status quo or even more hawkish in the sense of expanding membership and becoming more militant, particularly in Europe. We have the UK's Ben Wallace, a former army officer who is urging more defense spending for member countries and is warned against complacency where Putin is concerned. There's Christia Freeland, Canada's deputy, deputy Prime Minister, who has been a hardliner on the war in Ukraine and a purveyor of feminist foreign policy. Um, other names include uh, Mark Root, uh, Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallis and British, um, or we mentioned Ben Wallace, but also uh, European Commissioner, Commission President Ursula von van der Leyen. And uh, a number of others, I'm probably missing a few. Um, now, I'm reading, you know, in the, in the news this week that maybe they'll encourage Stoltenberg to stay. So, Dan, what do we make of all this? I mean, could a replacement be good? Does it even matter? Um, what do you think might happen, maybe even in the larger picture, at next month's big NATO summit in Vilnius? Wow.
1: Uh, sure. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, so, uh, the, the way I look at it, the, the race to succeed Stoltenberg, if it is a race, uh, really, a, a, the, the competition to replace him, uh, reflects a lot of the internal problems of the Alliance in that the, the people that want the job probably can't get it because they're opposed by this or that faction within the Alliance. And, and the people that might actually be an acceptable consensus candidate, uh, say that they don't actually want the job. Uh, but one of the people that is, being talked about most often as a, a possible replacement, is the Danish Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen, uh, and she says she doesn't want the job. Uh, but everyone seems to think that she would be a, a suitable replacement, uh, except that a lot of Eastern Europeans don't want another Western European, especially someone from from Northern Europe, taking the job. This would be the third uh, Nordic Secretary General that the alliance has had in a row, if she were to get it. Uh, and so that there, there's a sense of this sort of an Im- imbalance in who, who gets represented at the highest levels of the alliance, uh, and, and that points, I think, to, to more substantive tensions within the alliance over both over Ukraine and over f- future expansion, where you have a lot of Eastern European, European countries, led by Poland and the Baltics, want a much more aggressive posture over the war, and also want to guarantee Ukraine NATO membership in, in the very near future, uh, and then you have a lot of um, Western and, and Southern European nations that are not enthusiastic about either of those things. And so th- th- there really are strains within the alliance about the direction that they want to go in. And, and so I think that's reflected in this uh, debate over who should take over in, to replace Stoltenberg. Or course, I think yeah, he's, he's probably just sick of the job at this point. He's been there almost nine years, as you said. Uh, and he he has another job already lined up. He's supposed to go become the head of Norway's central bank and he he keeps That's having his convenient. term extended yes I and mean, he keeps having his term extended because they can't find anybody else who wants the job i guess or who who would be acceptable to enough members to get the job and uh what one of the things i think that kind of rules out some of the uh the more aggressive candidates uh someone like freeland or or like Kalis, is that they're simply too militant uh, on on ukraine and on nato expansion Uh, to be acceptable uh, to those members of the alliance that are uh, same, not necessarily uh, anti-Ukraine, but but are are much more skeptical of the the wisdom of bringing them into the alliance uh, anytime soon. And so among those, you certainly have uh, countries like Germany, uh, Hungary, uh, probably Italy to to some extent. And so uh, I think one of the things you're going to see – in the in the fight at at the Vilnius summit is there where there is going to be a fight about how much the alliance is actually going to be willing to promise Ukraine in the near term um and and i'm I'm hopeful that they won't promise very much because I mean of course what what helped get us into this mess was another misguided effort at a another NATO summit now fifteen years ago in Bucharest uh that that opened the door to nato membership to ukraine and georgia uh we've we've had guests on recently talking about the the negative repercussions of that uh when we talked with chris lane and ben schwartz uh recently uh they, they were pointing to that as one of the, the very bad turning points in uh the chain of events that has led us here and if vilnius were to repeat the same kind of errors they made at Bucharest, where they, they keep encouraging this idea that NATO membership is on the table and, and maybe getting closer, uh, I think that that will absolutely harden the Russian position uh, and, and make them even more determined to keep the war going for as long as possible. And so I think it, it would actually be a very bad thing if we're looking to, to bring the war to an end sooner rather than later, if people keep pushing this uh, this Ukrainian membership angle.
0: I totally agree. And I'm glad you brought up this um, this growing uh, concern over the pressure that's being put on uh, NATO members ahead of this vil- Vilnius, Vilnius summit regarding NATO me- membership for Ukraine, because looking at the news, there seems to be a, um, a shift towards Talking about what we had, you mentioned Ben Schwartz and Chris Lane, our great episode with them, but talking about a more permanent uh, security commitment to Ukraine in lieu of NATO membership. And that security commitment looking more like the commitments we have, the U.S. has with Israel and they're calling now they're calling it the Israel plan and which. We give Israel three billion dollars um, in military assistance every year, and on top of that, we maintain this uh, security superiority edge. I, I, I know I'm 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 blundering that term, but basically, we assure them that they are getting the most highest uh, technology, advanced weaponry that the United States currently has. In, uh, for for their security in that neighborhood so that translates into if we're selling Saudi Arabia or the UAE or Egyptian US arms we maintain that the that Israel always has the best version the best um, advanced weaponry whether it be f-35s or killer drones or what have you so we maintain they have that military edge over the rest of the neighborhood. So if we're looking to get, to get in, getting into a arrangement like that with Ukraine, that's going to cost U S taxpayers billions of dollars more a year. And it's going to cleave us to Ukraine. It's, it's not article five, but it runs right up to the line in which we will feel like, outside of an actual security agreement or or an ally treaty that we will have to come to their defense at some level because we will be so invested in keeping them uh, defended and secure against Russia. And I guess that's the next best thing to NATO membership. But I personally think that's still dangerous.
1: Well, right. And it would take on yet another security dependent in Europe uh, at a time when we need to be Shifting the burden to Europeans, not taking on additional burdens for even more European countries than we've already got, and so I, I'm I am a bit discouraged about the the sort of range of options that are available uh, when talking about what NATO is going to do here, uh, because it seems like any any option that gets chosen means an additional burden on the U.S. Uh, that that the U.S. doesn't need and and shouldn't be looking for. And I, but I don't think the Biden administration is going to uh, resist all of these options. They're going to end up may, maybe opposing a, a fast track for NATO membership. They've signaled that they're not interested in doing that right now. Uh, but they, they would, they're still going to end up leaving us on the hook for Ukraine's defense in one form or another. I, I guess in perpetuity. I mean, that's the, that's the way it seems to be going. And and that's I think that's the wrong direction the U.S. for the U.S. to be taking in Europe, uh, in general.
0: I'm afraid that the discussion in the mainstream media, Washington, you know, bloodstream has shifted away from what the counteroffensive will do for the current situation. You know, remember a couple months ago we were talking about well there'll be this co- counteroffensive and then the West will reassess its support. Uh, it'll reassess where the war is going and whether or not there, there needs to be an immediate push for, you know, negotiations and diplomacy to the end of the war. And now I feel like the conversation is now gone to, okay, how are we going to make Ukraine a, a permanent security partner, dependent, whatever you want to call it, outside of NATO membership? And let's not Kid ourselves, the issue of NATO membership is not off the table. This summit upcoming in Lithuania is really going to highlight the divisions within the alliance over whether or not Ukraine should be a member. And there is a hard push on the United States and others right now to come up with a at least a timetable that uh, affords the membership but it's like almost like a fast track it's a commitment to ukraine that they don't have now and they want to leave that they they want to leave that summit with some sort of plan on the table for bringing ukraine in so that argument is not over but i think the folks the people the forces that don't want nato membership are scrambling to come up with something that'll be as palatable as article 5 and and like i said i feel like that is going down a dangerous path because there are a lot of people in in the, in the washington security establishment that are already saying wow that that seems to be like a good idea this is this israel like plan uh, for ukraine and it's almost acknowledging that whatever happens on the ground in this offensive slash counteroffensive is not going to be definitive. We will not have a, an, an outcome, an end of the war. And so it is acknowledging that this is almost a forever war in Europe. And I, I feel like we're going down a path that we promised ourselves we wouldn't go down again and supporting another endless war. We'd like to welcome Sarang Shadori to our show today. Sarang is Director of Studies and Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute and a Senior Non-Resident Fellow at the Council on Strategic Risks. He is also an adjunct faculty member at George Washington University, where he teaches a class on the geopolitics
2: of climate change. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here again.
0: So we have a big visit to Washington coming up this week. Prime Minister Modi is coming to town. He is going to be giving an address to a joint session of Congress. I'm sure there'll be a flurry of meetings. Um, Is he meeting with Biden? He will be. Okay, so he's making all the stops. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So can you kind of set the table on the importance of this trip and some of the political expectations uh, on both sides, for the U.S. and for India?
2: So this this trip is a part of a long-standing evolution of the relationship. So by itself, the trip doesn't do anything dramatically new, ex- other than, of course, a symbolism of uh, Modi coming in, uh, being received with a state visit, which is uh, the highest honor for a foreign leader. There's a lot of ceremony around it. The, joint, uh, the, the address to the Joint session of Congress, where people will be keenly looking for clues and hints, you know, as they do. Uh, there will be important deals signed, most likely an arms sales deal from the U.S. to India. We, The U.S. love to sell arms around the world, and India is one of the biggest customers uh, that we have. So uh, there's, a, there's a drone sale that's been reported in the media that now apparently is, is getting close to confirmation. In terms of the next step, Uh, the money hasn't changed hands yet, but, you know, it's a process. Uh, There are also other conversations about uh, aircraft engines for an Indian uh, aircraft project, military aircraft project. Uh, There's also ongoing cooperation on other fronts, defense fronts. They will certainly talk about the Quad and China. China has been the biggest driver of the U.S.-India convergence for years, and this remains the case. Uh, they will probably talk about Russia and Ukraine, or, or although the, the most challenging moments for that conversation have passed, most likely, uh, given that India has been importing Russian, Russian oil for months and there's been some sort of an understanding that that's, that's if not okay, it's sort of tolerated in Washington. Uh, so, and then there are, of course, other areas like trade, uh, very important Uh as the U.S. is looking to French or move supply chains away from China. And India is a big space. So we have Vietnam, Malaysia and others but India has a kind of uh, potential uh, ballast to absorb the sort of supply chains that may move from China. Again, that's uh, I think a lot of it may be wishful thinking but to the extent that it's achieved the U.S. is looking at India as one of the spaces for that if if India is ready. Uh, uh, So And then climate, with uh, President Biden's priorities, climate change and clean energy are are always important. So India has, again, a major role to play in in getting to a decarbonized world. So that'll be on the agenda as well.
0: I'm I'm wondering why the the joint address to, to Congress. I believe this was an invite by Kevin McCarthy, the majority leader in the House. This seems different from other state visits that we've seen over the last several months, except for... Um, President Zelensky of Ukraine came and gave, but that was obvious why he was doing this. Why this particular um, setting?
2: It just goes to show how much importance the US is placing on India. While the conversation today is on, on Japan and Australia and those more long standing relationships, Europe, the US uh, and the president's team uh, is betting on India in a long term sense as a counterweight to China. It's that simple. Uh, There's a lot of talk about values and all that. Let's be clear. That's all very distant second, if at all, an equation, uh, um, a factor in this equation. The, The predominant factor is balancing China. Now, to what extent and how that's done is a different issue. And because that's a structural driver of the relationship, presidents and prime ministers will come and go, but the relationship will continue to converge based on the US China dynamic, which as we know is is very bad at the moment. So unless that changes, India becomes a very important and so the long term bet means giving India um the sort of uh let's say um space or or uh, a rank, if you will. Yes. In the Washington circuit. In a way that, you know, historically it wasn't twenty years ago India was nowhere in this town in terms of being recognized as an important player so this is all uh symbolism a lot of it is symbolism Mm -hmm. a lot of it is sort of uh, bestowing a sort of sense that this is a major not an ally formally but you know quasi quasi ally on china Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, that process continues
0: you've written for responsible statecraft and, and particularly a very important piece and i'll put it in the show notes but You've said India has um, all intentions of cooperating with the United States. It wants to share military technology, military industrial capability. Um, That avenue is open, but they're not necessarily all in on this China containment strategy. So can you explain that, you know, I, I would think that if taken what you've assessed that Congress might be a little disappointed with the extent that India has plans to cooperate with us on the China issue.
2: Yeah, I think expectations, you know, in the U.S., expectations are always high, that everybody's sort of seeing the world through a prism, uh, democracies versus autocracy or, or, um, uh, you know, do all, all you can to the max is, as we in the US are doing in terms of building all these, you know, arguably provocative <laughs> structures in Asia to contain China. India is in a different boat. For one, it, it is a huge country with internal challenges. It has internal security challenges. It has Pakistan as a very serious rival. Although smaller than India, it's a nuclear power. And it keeps India on its toes. Or even with its current difficulties, it remains a threat as the Delhi uh, policy analysts see it. Uh, And then since 2020, there has been a border standoff between India and China that has in many ways focused India's attention on its continental uh, side of its strategic envelope. There is the United States would like India to move into the maritime domain, because U.S. interests are centered around Taiwan, South China Sea—that's where the theater is. For American war planners, that's where it's going to happen if it happens. And we have predictions of 2027 20, and such interesting dates. But uh, India's role in that, ideally, from the U.S. standpoint, would be to play a supporting role in those theaters, not a leading role. Yeah. But a supporting role. What sort of support is, of course, can be can be. uh Speculated or, or analysed. India is increasingly, after June 2020, and it wasn't that it wasn't uh, important, it was very important, but now it's become more important with Pakistan as a continental challenge and China presenting itself as a continental uh, uh, terrestrial, military, direct military challenge. Uh, it has led. Now, on the other hand, India is also very focused on the Indian Ocean. It sees it as, as its lake. And this is all about powers looking for backyards and trying to the you know, classic and in that sense there is a us india overlap on the indian ocean that's stronger and that's where i think progress is being made the most but yes uh, expectations in washington are are the moon and uh, mm-hmm. india will not be able to achieve them if that's the standard uh, it just has too many vulnerabilities it also has to worry about indo chinese Trade relations, China is a very important supplier of many things that India does and exports like pharmaceuticals. Uh, A lot of the primary products come from China. A lot of the Indian economy is based on cheaper Chinese imports as intermediate uh, goods, but also finished products. China is somewhere between the first first or second largest uh, trade uh, partner of India in goods the same thing is actually true for us in the U.S. China is a very major trade partner for the United States. So, but India is more vulnerable to Chinese uh, kinds of economic uh, tools that they haven't really employed yet. So it has to watch its back given that it's still in a fragile economic place. It hasn't transitioned to the sort of middle, fully upper middle income country that China is yeah. in very much uh, at. So.
1: Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Sarang. Uh It's good to see you again. Uh, looking at how the Biden administration has been handling the, the relationship with India, uh, what would you recommend that the U.S. do that it isn't doing right now uh, to improve ties with India? Uh, would it would it involve uh, greater openness to to uh, free trade agreements, uh, or, or what what do you think would be uh, most productive?
2: So there are two aspects. I wrote a. Quincy Institute brief about this two years back almost, and I think a lot of that still stands. The, 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 why I worry about the over militarization of the U.S. India relationship. I generally worry about the over militarization of U.S. relationships with allies and partners in Asia, period. And India is one of them, as we just talked about. So, uh, in the case of, for example, the Philippines, that's taken the form of actually the U.S. returning to creating these sort of Bases that are not called bases, and then moving them closer to the Taiwan theater, which is quite provocative in terms of the cycle it can it can uh, trigger. In India's case, it's not an ally, so you don't have that sort of frontal presence of the US, uh, and it's unlikely to happen in that form. But there are other dimensions that are uh, have been growing apace: uh, the kinds of military-to-military relations, the jointness. That is emerging between the US and Indian militaries for warfighting, potentially. The Malabar exercise that is growing in its scope and intensity, which involves also Australia and Japan, the Quad countries, but again, denied as being a Quad exercise, interestingly, uh, is also about, uh, operations that are about jointness, are about interdiction, are about anti-submarine warfare. These are all China specific. There may be some humanitarian dimension to it in terms of relief and rescue, but it's predominantly China. Uh, So we have all of that growing apace. And of course, arms purchases that India is is, uh, acquiring from many countries, not just the U.S., but that remains uh, something that, uh, you know, we have a large military industrial complex in the U.S. and that feeds it in many ways, which is not good for us here. So... Uh, all in all, we need to shift out of the militarization, such a heavy emphasis. There, there should be a relationship, security relationship in the, uh, with India. There are issues like terrorism and others that need to be addressed. But uh, I would rather see a U.S.-India partnership that focuses on how India and the U.S. can both benefit economically. How can India rise economically in a way that creates jobs here, uh, that opens opportunities for young people? for innovation, for uh, new products, uh, for investment. Uh, India's rise is good for the U.S. because nobody wants a unipolar Asia. Nobody wants an Asia where China completely dominates. Uh, that's not the restraint preference either. But can we do it in a way that is safe? Where there's a multipolar Asia, but where India's Stronger because it's an economically stronger country, not because the US, we are present in full force and more and more entangled in the military relations and preparing, uh, frankly, for operations uh, with all of these countries that put Americans at risk and also the region at risk. So can we shift to a safer way of creating uh, a a multipolar Asia, uh, of maintaining, I should say, because it it is multipolar now. Uh, and in a way that's safe and in a way that secures uh, American interests. And also, by the way, if, if we are invested more economically, refine find those win-win partnerships. That, that's better for the U.S. broadly. I mean, we can take those to other parts of the world and benefit from it. And I don't see a downside to it, really.
1: Right. telling back to the Quad, we've, we've been mentioning the Quad uh, throughout the conversation. And the administration has been working uh, over the last few years to to turn that into really an anti-China bloc, or at least that's the way they want to take it. Um, But I I think that each of the members of the Quad has different ideas about what it's actually for. Uh, What what does India hope to get out of membership in the Quad, and what are the limits of its participation?
2: The best way to realize what India's preferences are is to look at Quad joint statements and then look at joint statements of the U.S., Japan, and Australia, or U.S. and Australia and U.S. and Japan bilaterally, there's a very big difference in the language. First of all, China is not mentioned at all in any Quad statement. In fact, at this point, the Quad doesn't even say it's a security block. It, it's, it's, it's saying quite strongly that it's a, a public goods uh, coalition. It's not an alliance. It's not a pact. It's not like AUKUS. It's uh, emphasized over and over again. All its pillars, most of them are, you know, economic uh, health and infrastructure. It's actually multiplying in pillars. There are some cybersecurity. There's maritime domain awareness, which is about illegal fishing, but has a dual uh, dimension potentially, which is military. But that's not stated explicitly, right? The focus is all about a good governance of the region. And here we are stewards, we are providing a choice, as Secretary Blinken said in in Delhi, we are not making countries choose but we are giving them a choice. Now, countries are not stupid in the region. Uh, They see that the Quad is in in many ways uh, two-faced. At one level, yes, the public goods uh, offerings is bringing if only it delivered would be wonderful. If it got better public health Uh, If it achieved more climate solutions, if it brought energy innovations, um, I think it's it's great. But it hasn't done very much of that. What it's actually done the most, where it hasn't really owned up to, is the Malabar exercise. The four countries exercising steadily every year, expanding that. Uh, and that's a high security dimension. But uh, the Quad says it's not a part, you know, they, they go into a different room called Malabar and then they come out and, and then they go to a room called Quad. Called and uh, again, countries can see that quite easily. Yeah. So I think uh, the question is what is a Quad really about and how can it deliver? How can it be a, a, a positive agent of change in the region? And I haven't seen so far a huge amount of uh, stuff to be. Very confident about it, but we'll see.
0: I have to ask one question before we finish. Uh, Modi has been roundly criticized for his human rights record in India, cracking down on Muslims over the last. How long has he been in office?
2: It's been uh, uh, 2014, so yeah. nine years.
0: Quite a long time, and most recently, we've seen the you know the kerfuffle between him and um, Elon Musk. Uh, you know, clamping down on 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 speech on Twitter at at Modi's behest. I know that there are a number of protests planned for his visit here in Washington. Um, how much of an issue is that going to come up? I mean, he's been a proto-authoritarian figure, at least as described as such here in the media. He was good pals with with Trump. Um, but it doesn't seem like our politicians on either side of the aisle really want to go there. Is he going to be pressed on his human rights record when, when he's here?
2: So, again, you know, it, it's very interesting that I think there's a sort of dim view and some may call it cynical a little bit. That human rights really don't matter in international relations in the sense that not that I don't want there to be right. democracy. And we cherish our democracy here with all its challenges, by the way. And there are quite a few. Uh, does that operationalize when it comes to how states relate to each other? I see no evidence for it. I see evidence in marginal cases in the United States. Uh, maybe there is a push for gay rights in the Dominican Republic by sending an ambassador there, things like that. Yeah. When it comes to core interests, human rights, are just really for rhetoric. It's really about uh, interest. And the, the, the discussion that is of most germane to the American people should be uh, how what are America's interests? How do we define our interests in Asia? Uh, starting a cold war is not in our interest. It's not in the region's interest. And how do we pursue those interests in a safe way? And the world is full of countries with different kinds of abuses. There are huge problems in India. Governance has been there for a long time. There are problems here. There are problems in so many countries in Asia and Africa, Latin America. If we started having uh, debates and foreign policies based on diverse systems, we'd, we'd be left with a, with a club of very few people that we can have a productive relationship. So I, I say focus on interests. That's also a more uh, restraint-friendly position. And in, in, through good relationships, and if we, have, if we emerge as a example of a functioning, strong democracy, I mean, the example I can give you is in the 70s. In the 70s, India went through two years of an authoritarian period uh, under a different political party. This was soon after Nixon's resignation after Watergate. And there was a lot of talk in India about how the United States was able to uh, be democratic, stay true to its ideals. Uh, And the U.S. uh, was not, U.S.-India relations were bad at the time. But the fact that the U.S. uh, was going through this churn itself, that there were challenges to, to its democracy and it figured it out, was a was a model for many parts of the world. I think that achieved more than all these coercive pressures, rhetoric that often is virtue signaling yeah. because it's so selective and it's based right. again on interest. It's a, it's a force multiplier. So I think if the U.S. focuses on repairing itself economically uh, as, a, as, a, as a model in so many ways that I think we, we have lost over time, then I think many societies and countries will see it as uh, inspiration in many ways. And that should be really what U.S. foreign policy should be about, about stressing that aspect of the United States rather than going around judging various countries, issuing reports. Right. Because we can all issue reports on each other, and it's not going to do any good be
0: honest yeah Yeah. and it just exposes our own hypocrisy when we pick and choose which countries we are going to um, push to be democratic or wage wars or proxy wars over democracies versus autocracies and then ignore other autocracies or other abuses when it's politically convenient and everybody can see it but i agree with you the the example is the most important
2: yeah Yeah. and in fact Being coercive about it can be counterproductive. Right. Uh, It often stiffens resistance in target countries, whether it's the Middle East or Asia or wherever. It doesn't lead to the outcomes that are claimed to be aimed at. So less modelism, less virtue signaling, Mm -hmm. more focus on concrete interests, and more focus on safe ways and less militaristic ways to achieve America's historic role as a, as a pole, as a shining star uh, in the world, uh, inspiration, and that should be the business of uh, the U.S. government. I
0: love it. When are you running for office? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I mean, you've said it. Um, yeah, well, we've run out of time, but would love to have you back because I feel like we're going to have a lot more to talk about in the
2: coming months. Sure. Thank you, Kelly, and uh, thanks, Dan, for having me again.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.